Before you start listening to this podcast, we've got a special subscription offer. You can get 12 issues of The Spectator for £12, which will give you full access to everything on our website. And we'll also throw in a free £20 Amazon voucher. Just go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher if you'd like to get this offer. Hello and welcome to the Edition Podcast, the Spectator's weekly podcast discussing some of the most intriguing and important issues within our pages each week, with the writers behind them. I'm Cindy Yu. This week kicked off with an incredible falling oil prices globally, so what on earth happened? We also talk about the budget, where Rishi Sunak set out a bit more detail on how the government's levelling up agenda will look. And finally, should we be doing more science for curiosity's sake? First up. The coronavirus may be bad for the global economy, but this week's oil drop, where prices fell by a third overnight, had little to do with the virus. Instead, Russia and Saudi Arabia have chosen this moment to go to war over oil prices. John R. Bradley explained just what happened in this week's cover piece with a sidebar article from our new economics correspondent, Kate Andrews, who takes a look at what this all means for America's fracking industry. Kate joins me on the podcast now, together with Owen Matthews, journalist and Russia expert. So, Owen, can you explain just what happened with the oil wars this week? Well, very simply, a three-year-old pact between Russia and Saudi Arabia, two of the three biggest um, oil exporters in the world, has broken down. And the proximate result has been that Saudi Arabia has massively ramped up production by two million barrels a day. And uh, Russia is also likely to uh, do the same. Um, Then the result is that oil prices have crashed by a third, sending oil company shares into a tailspin, Mm. but most importantly, um, raising really profound questions about the future of the American shale um, oil industry. And the shale oil has been completely transformative over the last decade because Mm. America went from a net importer of oil that was in the business of fighting wars in the Middle East to protect its oil and strategic interests to a net exporter and a very major net exporter of, of oil, all thanks to fracking. But fracking is expensive and fracking is not economically viable at a low price. So what's happened this week is actually potentially completely transformative of the the world's uh, energy economy. Kate, how significant is it that America is now a net gas and oil exporter? It has been very significant, and I think still is. So the narrative for quite some time now is that America's energy independence has fundamentally changed the world. It's exporting oil. It's no longer as dependent on its Middle Eastern allies or you know uncomfortable allies, really, as it once was. And as we saw back in January, when there was this tension between the U.S. and Iran over the drone strike on the Iranian general, oil prices barely budged. It didn't move. And it was thought that Donald Trump really had passed that first test of energy independence. I, I don't think that narrative is wrong, but there's a catch. And the vulnerability, as Owen has mentioned, is that financially this has been shaky for a long time. And people have actually been talking for years now about the potential bankruptcy around in, particularly independent smaller fracking companies, which are very important in America. They keep things competitive. I mean, something to remember is that America has really had this shale gas revolution through broadly a three 
a free market pathway. It's been competitive, not just domestically, but internationally. And the two other big oil players, Saudi Arabia and Russia, either own the oil industry uh, through the government or their crony friends do. And so when Saudi Arabia and Russia point their petrol pumps at each other, they can make compromises, make concessions, Mm. and basically throw the whole kitchen sink at it to keep their oil production going. America's very unlikely to step in in the same way. The state's not as comfortable in getting involved in the market. And that means that the president in particular is in a difficult situation if he wants to have a real impact on this oil war. Is that true even for Trump, who, I mean, isn't exactly a trade liberalist when you look at his trade wars? He's much more willing to use states' mechanisms to help in other ways. You don't think he might step in a bit more? We're not talking about a one-off subsidy to help a one-off company. We're talking about an international oil war. And, you know, actually, you could argue that even though big companies like Exxon have seen their share price fall slightly, they might really appreciate the small guys going out of business. They can buy their equipment and their tools and the rest of it real cheap and create more of a monopoly in the States. But it's, it's not obvious to me at all that, that Trump can quite, quite easily mm. step in and save this entire industry, nor necessarily should he. But what we've realized over the past few days is that the realities of the, of the nitty gritty world where not everybody plays by America's standards and not everybody's operating on a level playing field is now catching up with the fracking industry in the States. So Owen, you mentioned this three-year pact between Saudi Arabia and Russia. What what broke it in, in this last week? You know, what was the trigger here? Well, it's a strange combination, I think. I, mean, I, <clears throat> I think on Putin's part, a desire to kill off the, the shale gas industry. A lot of... Um, uh, brinkmanship on behalf of, and so maybe petulance on behalf of of, of MBS, mm. but definitely they've gone from a sort of fragile and somewhat uncomfortable sort of peace, which was essentially maintaining you know an oligopoly, you know just fixing prices, fixing production between them, to an all-out death match, actually, and a race to the bottom. And the question becomes, I mean that. You know, we're talking about the three major players, America, Russia, and Saudi. But two of those players are entirely dependent on oil and gas for their economic survival and mm-hmm. political stability. America is not. And so, essentially, you're, you're dealing with an incredibly high-stakes game. I mean, it's properly existential for the House of Saud and for the future of, of, of Vladimir Putin. Because, in, in Putin's case, the choice was really between a kind of slow bleed of sort of mid-range prices that keep American shale industry going and, you know, basically leave Russia in a kind of long-term losing game because Russia, of those three countries, has the smallest and shortest reserves. Or to really just sort of go for it and mm-hmm. race to the bottom and try if they, and see if they can actually cause major disruption in America, not just in America, um, as we discussed in the shale industry, but also actually in the House of Saud. Because weirdly, the, uh, the Saudi budget balances at a much higher price than the Russian budget. And the Russians have actually strangely enough, um, by, some, by some people's estimations, have actually been extremely cautious and had enormous foresight in mm. actually putting aside a lot of the windfall income over the years from high oil prices to in a stabilization fund, which enables Putin to have a kind of fighting fund to keep himself 
in business while the oil prices are low. Saudi Arabia has made no such provision, as far as I'm aware. So actually, the, the, the stakes really couldn't be higher. And Putin is really fighting you know, for his own political survival and Saudi Arabia's. Kate, um, I mean, the economic cost of this oil war aside, geopolitically, is this actually, you know, a good moment, an opportune moment for America when you consider that it's actually making Saudi Arabia and Russia go head-to-head instead of the peace that they had? Well, the great piece in the magazine this week, the cover piece written by John Bradley, highlights why it's not all bad news for America. Oil prices going down can create a bit of an economic bump in its own right. It's good for consumers, that's true. Also, the oil war is going to have a knock-on effect on some of America's enemies, like Iran. So it's, you know, when it comes to the geopolitical perspective, it's not all bad news for America. But the U.S. has wanted to be energy independent for quite some time now. Presidential hopeful Barack Obama, back in 28, who then became president, made very clear that he thought that, you know, tackling the energy industry and being energy independent was a matter of national security. Mm. Obviously, he didn't think that was only done through oil and fracking. The green energy stuff comes into play here as well and a lot of investment there. But the U.S. has always been very aware of its dependence and its sticky relationship, really, as a democracy with dictatorships. And it's something that America, I think, was very proud of to be able to say it was energy independent. And then to have the finances come into come into play and be so at risk would be a really big setback, I think, for the country. And I mean, we've talked a lot about fossil fuels like oil and gas, but what about green energy here? I mean, is, is this a good moment for green energy or is this a threat as well? Well, actually, it's very bad for green energy because lots of renewables are much more expensive, multiple times more expensive than hydrocarbons. But they were somewhat sort of converging at a high oil price. At a low oil price, those those renewables have a lot more work to do to become in any way economically competitive, which is actually quite an important strategic challenge because, you know, if, if the two you know, hydrocarbons and renewables mm. are more or less in the ballpark, then the government doesn't have to stand in to make, to step in, to incentivize people to, to use renewables. Cheap oil is really bad for all kinds of renewables, from the car industry to, to, to electricity generation. Thanks, Kate and Owen. Next. It seemed like an impossible task, but new Chancellor Rishi Sunak has delivered a budget which, on the face of it, tackles coronavirus worries and sets out the first step in the government's level-up agenda. The budget this week was the biggest giveaway since Norman Lamont's pre-election giveaway in 1992. But, James Forsyth writes in this week's political column, the real test of the budget will be whether or not the private sector also gets on board. James joins the podcast now and he talks to Katie Balls, our deputy political editor, together with Polly McKenzie, director of the Demos think tank and former advisor to Nick Clegg. James, to many who are watching the budget, they felt that some of the things Rishi Sunak said could have come from the mouth of a Labour Chancellor rather than a Tory government in its 10th year. So when it comes to the high borrowing that the Conservative government has decided to adopt going forward, not just in terms of the coronavirus, there was a £30 billion package there, but there was a second part of this budget which does involve high borrowing. Is this the taste of things to come? Have the Tory party moved to Labour's ground? I think the Tory party have become a higher spending party. Polly was in coalition with the the Tory party when the Tory party was obsessed by the deficit. This is a Tory party that that basically believes the deficit is big enough to look after itself and takes a view, essentially, that what matters is not the size of your deficit, but how much it costs you to service 
your national debt. And as long as servicing your national debt is relatively cheap, they are not worried about running deficits and, and adding to the national debt. And so I think there is, there is a shift here. And I think but the big gamble, I think, in this budget is this, is this budget was essentially the state spending the seed capital to make the kind of neglected parts of Britain more attractive places to live, work and invest in. And the gamble is that once a state has done that, once a state has put that physical and digital infrastructure in place, the private sector is going to say, right, we're moving in there, we're going to put our capital there. That's the big bet they're making because ultimately it's not sustainable to have a a strategy for levelling up based solely on public sector investment. It's got to bring in private sector money too. Polly, do you think this is a strategy that is going to yield results? Well, I, I certainly think it's better than the alternative strategy of continuing to sort of relentlessly cut. James is of course right that it's a shift But there is a way to kind of intellectually tie it all together. In 2010, there was a deficit of 12%. We now are actually really close to balancing the books in terms of day-to-day spending. And the major expansion here is around, as James is saying, infrastructure spending rather than that day-to-day stuff. And that's why you will see, if you look on Twitter, some hysteria from the left, but also some reasonable criticism from experts around the kind of distributional impact of the budget, that poorer people are still much worse off as a result of the decisions of this government, because infrastructure spending helps everyone, right? Everyone gets to go on the roads. In fact, richer people are more likely to have cars, more likely to use the roads and the railways, whereas poorer people are bearing the brunt of things like welfare cuts, and there are still welfare cuts to come. The question is, will that actually work on the kind of political time horizon to change the experience of people in those seats, those red wall seats or blue wall seats, whatever they are now, especially in the context of coronavirus and in the context of Brexit, which is going to be hurried through this year, will there be changes in the economic and social experiences of people in those seats in time for the next election? The challenge with infrastructure is that it takes absolutely ages to get anything done. James, in the budget, one of the big matters that's being discussed ahead of Rishi Sunak's unveiling of his red box was whether or not he would stick with Sajid Javid's fiscal rules. That decision has been delayed until the autumn, but we've had the Institute of Fiscal Studies say this week that ultimately on day-to-day spending, so public services, this isn't actually a particularly generous budget and it doesn't give the chance them much room to play with. So while we're talking about infrastructure and the, the big increase there, in terms of public spending, it's pretty much status quo. Yeah, and I think this is the question, which is, are they planning to come up with new fiscal rules before they do the spending review? Or is a spending review which has got to deal with defence, social care, all these other questions of how much money you're going to spend, are they going to try and do that within these existing rules? I suspect that as they try and do the CSR, which they want to do this summer, I think they will want probably want new fiscal rules in place for that. Now, I think the big, the big question here is... Polly's point about the deficit being 12% is true. The Tories would have one other point to this argument, which is in 2010, everyone thought that interest rates were going to snap back to something like what they used to be. It does appear now that there has been a structural shift in the global economy and that interest rates are going to be low for a sustained period of time. And so there is now this opportunity to get lots of long maturing debt away at these very, very low levels of rates. And, you know, to use a kind of domestic analogy, it's like, would you move to a bigger house 
with a garden where all your kids can have their own bedroom if you could afford the mortgage repayments, even if it meant you had a larger mortgage because interest rates were suddenly dramatically lower than they have been previously. That's the kind of experience we are now in as a country. And I think what this government has decided to do is to take the risk of moving to the bigger house and hoping that, that you can fix your your mortgage at that low rate for long enough that you're going to be sufficiently well off to pay it. I think the other question again becomes this, which is, you know, the whole idea of this levelling up agenda is that these places are going to become more productive. And the OBR again have downgraded productivity. And I think that presages another change in the fiscal rules, which is, I think it is very hard intellectually to see the argument for why building a bridge counts as investment capital spending in crude terms tick good not current spending and reskilling workers so that they can be more productive in the in the modern economy doesn't count as capital spending and investment and therefore tick and therefore easier to do but so james is completely right about that and there is this kind of false distinction between things and services that things are infrastructure and, and services are not. And of course that's wrong, especially as the economy shifts away from capital-based, you know, financial investment-based growth, where the, the real the real value of our economies is in the people, and that's where we ought to be investing. There's lots of academic work about that. The challenge, though, is that building a hospital to keep lots of old people alive for a long time is a great idea from a social perspective, but it's not going to improve the economy. It doesn't improve the economy at all. In fact, it costs us loads of money because then you have to pay their pensions. I'm still in favour of doing it. But if you're going to reclassify skills as investment, you probably also have to reclassify building stuff for old people, for example, or building prisons as not actually investment at all. Probably under Theresa May, we heard that austerity was over, mm-hmm. and yet she did warn that the Tories ought to head on a caution when this budget was unveiled, suggesting that she, even by her standards, the spending was was pretty big. But Rishi Sunak was talking about a, you know a new decade of renewal, the idea that this was going to going forward be a time where the UK would um, really benefit from prosperity. But I wondered. Listening to what's in the budget, do you think people are going to feel as though their lives are improving in terms of public services areas around them, or people are still going to feel pretty squeezed? I think it's really hard to know. It's such a cop-out answer, isn't it? But we've been looking at Demos at some research around the kind of what's called the cost of thriving. So things like cars and healthcare go up in quality over time you know we can survive much longer illnesses for much longer cars are a be- much better protection for you but they are also more expensive doesn't count as inflation because the quality's gone up but it means that the that nice house that James was talking about or the healthcare costs that we pay for through our taxes all those costs actually just that sort of decent standard of living that people aspire to has actually got further and further away from people and that's a kind of a generational headwind that uh, Rishi Sunak and all of this investment is is facing. You add on to that the kind of demographic squeeze. I hope that, in fact, because our dependency ratio, the number of old people we have per per worker, will continue to rise because obviously the suggestion is with coronavirus that it might stop rising. And I don't think that anybody should be happy or excited about that. And we also have climate change, huge. And then on top of this, the government has decided to layer a very aggressive, high divergent Brexit strategy to be got through in a hurry, regardless of uh, what other economic headwinds there are. So I think that Rishi Sunak is in fact doing 
almost all the right things. I agreed with the vast majority of what he said in the budget yesterday. But is it enough when, you know, the, the economy around us, society around us is shifting so much and the expectations we have in the West about the way our lives should be just are changing? James, in your column, you say for growth to be sustainable, it must be led by the private sector. All the growth forecasts at the moment aren't particularly promising. And that's even if you take take out out coronavirus. So when are we going to know if the government's strategy here, what it is planning to do in terms of spending is actually yielding results and and paying off? So I think Polly made a very good point about how long infrastructure projects take. But I think by 2024, right, if you show, if we look at private sector investment, in those kind of, let, let's use the word red wall, because that's the simplest way of understanding it, you know, in those red wall seats, if private sector investment is rising significantly, then I think that suggests that levelling up is going to work. It is suggesting that, you know, because some of these some of these bits of these investments, you know, better mobile phone signal, better broadband, better roads linking up towns with cities, some of this stuff can be done fairly fast, right? If that is all beginning to happen, and you are getting private sector investment following that, that suggests the strategy is going to work. If it isn't happening, then I think you aren't going to see the strategy work. And I think this on this long-term point, how nebulous it is, because let, let's be honest, people aren't going to be looking at private sector investment levels before they go to the polls. The reason this government is so obsessed with delivering on its manifesto promises, you know, to the extent that Boris Johnson has the cabinet kind of calling out the numbers to him, is because they believe that if they can show they've delivered on those simple things, like people see more nurses in hospitals, more police on the streets, then those will trust them to deliver the more complex stuff, which is the stuff that Polly was just talking about on the levelling up front. Yeah, but it's fascinating, isn't it, the way they have shifted to measuring the inputs in our public services. You know, something that Gordon Brown did that mm. and Tony Blair didn't. Tony Blair talked about A&E waiting times, yeah. not about the oh, number God. of nurses. No. And Brown went, you know, then shifted and, and was pilloried by the Tories for only talking about inputs. Yeah. Not, the, not the quality of the services that people the people experience you know are they going to cut crime they're not talking about that because they can't be certain of it they know that it's difficult and complicated so they've offered something simple and maybe that's better politics but i think it is really depressing policy what i think is very striking is how boris johnson talks about how people must feel these things which is which is a i mean i think one of the things that was often missed about this government is this is the most focus group influenced government since tony blair you know if you look at that first speech that boris johnson gave when he stood on the steps of Downing Street when he first became PM, that was basically a focus group greatest hits list of things that people people care about, and and I think that that is one of the things that they are, the, the things that they are trying to do to kind of maintain public consent. If it wasn't for the coronavirus, we would consider the level of Brexit uncertainty that remains in the economy a really big issue, and we would all be saying, clearing our voices, and saying, "Well, it's very difficult to know what's going to happen until you know what's going to happen with Brexit." But now there's also coronavirus layered on top of that so there are these two massive bits of uncertainty over the economy that make it kind of make much more difficult to know what you know how you know predicting the future is hard that was katie polly and james and last when it comes to scientists newton darwin faraday maxwell rutherford hardy and so on what do they have in common Dr Thomas Fink, director of the London Institute for Mathematical Sciences, argues in this week's issue that they all research basic science, that is, science without a particular purpose, but just for curiosity's sake. He argues in a piece that, post-Brexit, the British government ought to be looking at funding more scientific projects like this, rather than ones with a more limited aim in mind. 
He joins me on the podcast now, together with Dallas Campbell, a TV presenter of science shows such as The Gadget Show and Bang Goes the Theory. So, Thomas, can you start by telling us what basic science is? So, by basic science, I mean science that is done without a motivation or a sense of its of its end use. So basic science is really looking for the patterns in front of you and trying to spot those patterns and describe those patterns, usually in the language of mathematics. And that's as opposed to applied science, is that right? Yes. So applied science typically would say, well, we need to solve this particular human need. That tends to be reducing toil or defense or health or things like that. And what are some examples of great British basic science? Sounds like a reality TV show. So you've got a lot to choose from. You know, Maxwell, Maxwell's equations, I think is a very nice example. He was really thinking, how can I give a compact description of some of the experiments that were being done at the Royal Institution by Faraday and others? And you know, that's basing in the sense he wasn't thinking about, you know, the radio or mobile mm. phones. And Dallas, a big part of your work is getting people who might not be interested in science or trained in scientific background interested in science. Yes. So is this the sort of basic science, you know, is this a fundamental interest in science that you see coming across? Definitely. And actually, the Royal Institution is a very good example. The Royal Institution is very much a, a lay organisation as opposed to the Royal Society. In fact, the Royal Institution, when it was opened on Albemarle Street, Albemarle Street became the first one-way street in the world, I think, because wow. people were so interested in the demonstrations, the science that was going on there. That not for any particular purpose. Not particularly any purpose, but they, but they were curious. And at its heart, a basic science, if, we, if, we, if that's our term, yes. is inherent curiosity if you are a human being you want to know how the world works and how you fit into it and what's beyond the horizon and ultimately that's the the seed of all of science and i think as you write in your article thomas you know scientists that is their their joy in life is is being able to see these patterns and being able to be curious and try and you know push a bit further see beyond those horizons but anyway yes the royal institution where i've worked many many times before it's that great privilege when you stand okay. in that wonderful theater you, you must have been in it yes uh, yes i'm claiming science back for everyone i think we have a fundamental problem i think specifically in britain america that only scientists are somehow allowed mm. to be interested in science it's the question i get asked the most actually people say wait you so you you work in you make science programs you must be a scientist and when i say well no i'm not a scientist they they think you must be a fraud right. which which i am obviously but it's a bit like saying well you like music but you don't play the piano how yeah. come it's the same so thing. So I, I think I'm glad you mentioned that because one of the things that I find the public often misunderstands about scientists, and I even said this to somebody who works at our institute who's a graphic designer, I said, by, by the way, Roman, you know, I'm, I'm not really in this for the usefulness. I just love the sort of the beauty of the mathematics and, yeah. I, and I see this pattern and I want to like dig deeper and there must be some evolutionary force in us which allows us to make the chaotic world more predictable. Yeah. And I think it's very important to understand how to manage science, how to fund it, how to get the best out of scientists, is to think, why are they in this job in the first place? Yeah, right. I think you're right. I think, and I think science is so complicated now, and the world is so complicated, that, that, that sort of joy of that simple curiosity gets lost in a world now. Here we have institutions, universities, which are obsessed by metrics. Scientists are under more and more pressure to publish in ever more prestigious journals and do everything else that scientists have to do all day. So that pure research, that pure blue sky thinking gets smaller and smaller and smaller. The days of the, the, the Maxwells and the Newtons are kind of 
over and it's easy to be you know nostalgic but science is so intertwined like the world is now we're all yeah. working groups and international groups with funding bodies because it's more and more expensive so you know when your bottom line is at stake it's mm. always that blue sky thinking that seems to get forgotten and, and yes it's which, the most important and which is the worst part yeah because you know one of the things I, i've been thinking about recently and write about is that you see this a lot with funding agencies i mean i i've I have a lot of experience with Horizon <laughs> 2020, the EU, and almost every other funding agency. Yeah. And the mistake they often make is they say, tell us now what the use of this research is going to be. You know, do 10 pages on impact or do an impact summary. And I think that's putting the cart before the horse. What is technology? Technology is a pattern or a principle used to solve a problem. And if we're not increasing our repertoire of patterns we're not going to be able to find radical solutions to the problems of today and the problems of, of the future. And we can't imagine, I mean, just go back in time, you can never imagine the, the patterns and the technologies that will be possible in 5, 10, 50 years. But I suppose part of this, and in, in your article as well, you mentioned the EU and funding like that, part of the worry from their side is that this is taxpayers' money. So if you can't prove yeah. that, you, that you're using it for a good cause... Maybe basic science isn't for taxpayers' money. I sort of think in the old days when the world was less connected, before we had social media and everyone was terrified of saying the wrong thing, you know, people took responsibility and it was up to you. There's the famous story of, of Margaret Thatcher when they were trying to build, I think it was the Large Hadron Collider, whenever it was, and trying to raise money. And she said, well, if you can explain it to me and so I understand it. And they right, did. And she right, said, you shall have your money. Uh, Those days of people, of, sort of individuals making decisions. Mm. And of course, we didn't know about it because... We didn't know about anything because it wasn't particularly sort of public knowledge. But everyone's so fearful now of making a mistake or putting money into something expensive that everyone is sort of retreating back into safety, safety, safety. Everyone's become increasingly risk averse. And so it, it, it is a function so, of the, the way the world is set up, unfortunately. Well, well yes and no. I mean, the idea that governments give money to researchers to go away and think, that's much more recent than people realize. I mean, that's mm. a sort of well, interwar, interwar yes. invention, right? So the fact, I mean, until then, science was done through patronage, through learned societies, yes. through, you know, through people who are well-to-do, uh, rich. That whole model, I mean, perhaps one could ask not so much why have governments stopped giving money for basic science? Why did they do it in the first place? Mm. And I think an answer to that is that they realized, you know what? When we do this, magic happens. Radar, yeah. as we just were talking yeah. about. And that's true. I mean, there, and there are things, I mean, things like Saifu and, you know, companies like Google will, will big sort of tech companies will set aside time and events mm. for people to kind of get together and do, you know, wonderful blue sky thinking. Actually, and I think things like the internet, the digital revolution, which has brought people together in a way that would never happen before. That is going to have, well, it going to have, it has had a huge effect on science. Our foot is firmly on the accelerator, I think, in terms of technology of all different kinds, you know. And Thomas, you make a really interesting point about the movements and the direction that this current government is going in. Can you give us some examples of how you think that they are doing things differently to the EU, not to make everything about Brexit? One of the weirdest things about science in this country, obviously I'm a big fan, I came here to study and ended up staying as a researcher. I'm from Texas. One of the strange things about this country is that almost all research is done inside the universities. It's very, you know, very different from America, which has national labs and private institutes. Germany has Helmholtz centers and its Max Planck institutes. But in Britain, you know, practically 99% of research is done inside universities. 
One of the things I liked about some of this government's discussion is talking about getting a, a broader ecosystem of research organizations. And, and that's been something that's been, been a big part of my mission. I set up the London Institute for Mathematical Sciences, which is meant to be a home for people who want to do full-time curiosity-driven research. So we're looking to the universities to take their best and brightest and say, you know what, maybe you didn't want a career, you know, half-time teaching or, you know, a lot of the duties that come along with, you know, university life. So I think this government is, is open to that. It's made very bold uh, moves on funding basic science in the form of $300 million for the mathematical sciences. Today's a very exciting day with the creation of a British DARPA ARPA, which I think um, is something that you know, I've been pushing for for, for years. And that's a research agency. That's a research agency in America. In fact, it's the first agency that funded our, our physics and mathematics institute in this country um, about eight years ago. And Dallas, I just want to finish off by asking you about how you think we as a British society get enough. I mean, one thing that you said mentioned earlier is that people don't think you should be presenting science shows because you're not a scientist. Are we separating people? I mean, I often feel that students are made to choose between science and humanities well, too early, for example. Well, don't, I mean, it's always the famous two cultures argument by um, C.P. Snow. Yeah, thank you. Which is, you know, every, every, every and I apologise to your listeners because every time that question gets asked, the C.P. Snow <laughs> two cultures <laughs> article. Yeah, we are. We're sort of humanities always sciences. But of course, you know, they both come from trying to understand the human condition. I, as I mean, I, st- I studied English at university, but I've always been I loved science. I've been fascinated by science. I've always wanted to know how the world works. Why, 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 why wouldn't you be? I find it very odd that not everyone, you know, and cars can drive down Albemarle Street both ways. Now makes me really sad. Right. I think there's also a change just, just in terms of. Support public perception as well. I think mm. maybe 10, 15 years ago, things like scientists doing outreach was a little bit frowned upon. You know, if you were a top scientist, yes. you sort of didn't really bother with that. Right. But I think I do sort of sense a change. Mm. I think I think actually doing good outreach, I, I can't bear the word outreach. We need, we need, I can't we need stand. a better word. It's actually, ghastly, isn't it? It's that thing, oh, let us reach out, you right. poor non, oh, oh you're know. non-science. Oh, let us touch you with our science. It's yeah. so awful. Somebody emailed me, and we, it may have been you, said I'd like to reach out. I'm not sure. Oh, yeah, sorry. can you hear that? There's another, what's the other word I hate in science? Outreach. And, Glad you're on. <laughs> there's, another one, there's another one I but the, the reason it's such a bad word is it promotes the differences between people. It's like, if I'm outreach, it's like there's yes. us and you. <laughs> right, and that's right. the problem. If you really want to embed science as part of culture, which yeah. is the main purpose of things like the British Science Association, the Royal Institution, you have to stop thinking of it as outreach. We just have to think of it as normal. As and, and like It's stuff that people do. <laughs> but I'm into storytelling. I feel yes. that scientists need to really think about telling stories mm. like Read. create tension and then resolve yes. the tension F- pre- tell us about the monster before you told me how you killed the monster correct now i want everyone who's listened to this and you both must read a book by will store it's called the science of storytelling that came out last week last week last year sorry it's fantastic and it is all about that is it well it's all about a, 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 the science about how we are story animals we are yes. pattern seekers right we are narrative creatures this is how we function which is why we do science but also about the how you know structurally how science works mm. and actually if you think about a scientific paper it is a kind of three-act structure it's a beginning a middle and end it's an aim method results it's like we don't know something we go through a toil in order to find and then we have a result at the end yes that's why science makes such good stories ultimately 
That's a great note to end on. Dallas and Thomas, thanks very much. And that's it for this week. Pick up this week's issue to read all of the pieces discussed on the podcast, as well as Guardian columnist Suzanne Moore's diary, where she talks about being denounced by her own colleagues, Sam Leith on why it's okay to panic about the coronavirus, and Rabbi Jonathan Sachs's notebook. And if you don't have a subscription to the magazine, you can get one at spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher, where for just £12, you can get 12 weeks of the magazine, as well as full access to everything on our website, and a £20 Amazon voucher, all for just £12. What else are you going to do when we all get locked in? Thanks for listening and join us again next week. (laughs) 